Thank you, dancers, and thank you, and orchestra, and choir. Find John, please. The good news, the gospel according to John. We're going to read from chapter 1, chapter 1, 1 through 5, and then verse 14. Some of you might remember 1995, and the Bob Singer, Joan Osborne, who sang, What if God was one of us? This Christmas and every Christmas, we celebrate justice and The creative university who won the stars in space became one of us. The text we're going to read today is a foundational, fundamental, pivotal text in the, in the Christian faith where it reminds us that our faith is based not on human efforts to reach the Almighty, but rather on the Almighty's efforts to reach us. This is a common text at Christmas. It is um, inappropriately so. John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And let's pause just for a moment to remember that that's a, a Greek philosophical term that means communications or voice. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In a moment, we're going to see that this Word is God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And it says that He was with God, which means there is a distinction between the persons of Father and Son. And yet they are one in nature. The Word was with God, and yet the Word was God. So there's a distinction in person. But a unity in nature in the beginning, before anything was, was the Word, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And it was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the expression of God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. You see there the connection between the Word and God the Son. Who came from the Father, Father, full of grace, full of grace and truth. You might want to keep your Bibles open if you have them open. We're going to walk through that text. The first thing we're going to notice is the phrase became flesh. John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And him was life, and that life was life. Life was the life of man. And then the word, a few verses later, verse 14, the word, the same one of whom John had just written, the one without whom nothing was made that has been made, became flesh. What mystery, what profound, wonderful mystery that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took upon himself to the flesh and blood. Jesus the Christ, fully human and fully divine, as much human as if he were not God, as much God as if he were not human. The one person in which there uniquely exists the two natures. Or someone said, God became who God was not human, and yet remained who God always had been, divine. Across the years and across the world, people have known instinctively that there is someone, someone bigger than we are, that there is someone beyond us. They've not always had a name, of course, or even an image, but people have struggled to know, to wonder, what must this one beyond us be like? They have referred to him as the Great Spirit. They have carved images into wood and stone and said, this is what the one beyond us looks like. They've invented stories of gods and goddesses that live on, on Mount Olympus. And I know there always have been skeptics, there always have been atheists that didn't believe, but the overwhelming majority of people throughout history and around the globe have known there's someone and have wondered, what is this someone? Of course, God has communicated himself, revealed himself, revealed himself in a number of ways. He's spoken directly to people, Adam, Eve, Noah, Moses, Elijah, and Elijah. He's revealed himself through nature and conscience. Romans 1 tells us that. He revealed himself for thousands of years through the prophets, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, and so on. But when God revealed himself most perfectly, he did it in the God and man, the one we know as Jesus. One person in which there uniquely exists humanity and divinity. Now that's hard for us to get our heads around 2,000 years later. It was certainly hard for the original Christians to get their heads around. But that's what began to emerge as our scripture was distributed. In those days, one person would sit in a room with other, they called them amanuenses or secretaries, would surround them with their quills and their papyrus. And the person would read, for example, a man in Jerusalem would have had the original manuscript of Matthew's Gospel. He read and others read. Today you would scan it and send it as a Google Doc. But in those days they, they had to copy by hand. So they would copy several, several copies of Matthew, then they would 
distribute them around the Mediterranean world as the Christian faith began to spread and as churches sprang up, they, they would share these documents and then they shared the, the book of Acts when it came together. They made copies of that and then Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Revelation. And, and so the churches across the Mediterranean started collecting all these different documents, the gospels and the letters. And they had, so then they began to understand how it all fit together and, and Christian theology emerged. Theology, words about God. So these formal, educated Christian teachers began to teach what was obvious to them in the scriptures, though profoundly mysterious. They began to teach that Jesus is, is God and is God in. Again, it was hard for them to get their heads around. It's hard for us to get our heads around. And some wandered from that. Arius, for example, around the year 300, was a popular Christian teacher, but he began to teach that Jesus is, 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 a, is a human, a prophet, a teacher, but not really God, that he was sent from God, he was a true messenger of God, but not but not God. That was Arius. Well, the other Christian theologians said, we cannot let that go unchallenged. And so they, they came together in a big council in Nicaea in 325. Nicaea, and they came up with a statement, a theological statement to say, who is Jesus? And this was from the Nicene Creed, and some of you grew up repeating it. It's here somewhere. Here it is. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So in the Nicene Creed, these Christian theologians believed they could settle the matter. But a few decades later, a man named Apollinarius came along and he said the Nicene Creed is right. And Arius was wrong. Jesus is truly human. Excuse me, Jesus is God. But he wasn't truly human. He looked human. He looked human. He ate like humans, he spoke like humans, but he was, he was God walking on earth, but not really, not really, not really human. And the Christian theologians were pulling their hair out, hair out and they thought, we, we thought we had settled this, and so they got together in Alexandria, Egypt, and they said that not only is Arius wrong, but also Apollinarius was wrong, and Jesus is God and man. And then in Chalcedon, in 451 AD, the Greek city of Chalcedon, the leading theologians got together and put words to this truth that God is, that Jesus is both God and man. And this comes from that Chalcedonian Creed 450. Christ is truly God and truly man in two natures without confusion, without separation. The distinction of nature's being in no way in the old by the union. And I know that's high language, but the words you're more likely to hear today, God is as much, Jesus is as much God as if he were not God, as much human as if he were not God. So the first reference we look at is became flesh. God, God in, the, in the person of Jesus, became fully human, fully human, and fully God in one person, one of the two natures, the two natures. The second phrase, lived among us. John 1, 14, the word, the second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as it famously says in the message, he moved into the neighborhood. In the 1990s, there were a group of people in Churchill, in Churchill part of Richmond, Virginia, where we lived. A man I knew pretty well named Don Coleman was part of a Christian group that wanted so badly for Churchill to be transformed. Churchill was an economically depressed area, lots of old, beautiful houses, most of which were really run down. And their community was suffering, so Don Coleman and others began to pray that God would send people and resources. They were working hard to serve their community. If they didn't have enough resources, there were real transformation, and they began to pray that God would send people and resources to help them transform that community. And some people on the other side of town, on the west end of Richmond, began to get interested in Churchill. And these, most of these people in the West End were people in their 20s. So they got really interested in church. And so they started sending money, and they started advising, and they started going in and doing wonderful projects. But at the end of the project, they would go back to their lovely suburban home and their comfortable suburban lives. And these folks from the West End of Richmond, who loved church, who loved church, it became obvious to them that they were that they were outsiders. That no matter their intentions, they still were outsiders. And they realized the only way to become insiders is desires. Move into the neighborhood. So around the turn of the century, these 20-somethings and 30-somethings bought houses in and moved into Churchill, the whole family, put their kids in schools. They started chat, Churchill activities in two days. In uh, 2008, they started East End Fellowship, which is a wonderful, integrated, uh, beautifully integrated, socially, racially integrated congregation. Churchill is being transformed. It couldn't be transformed from the outside. People had to move into the neighborhood. 
You know where I'm going with this. God had spoken to people. He had spoken through his prophets, but he still was an outsider, as it were, and he decided 2,000 years ago that he would move into the neighborhood, that he would become the ultimate insider, that he was higher than one of us. But back to Churchill for a second. When people from the West End of Richmond began to move into Church Hill, everybody wasn't crazy about that idea. For, again, they put their kids in schools, and so they, parents joined the PTA. They started helping plan things or uh, events in the, events in the community. And some residents of Church Hill wondered, who are you to come in and tell us how to do things? The people from the outside had good intentions, but crossing cultures is difficult. Some of the people of Church Hill were understandably skeptical. Which brings me to our next truth. We've looked at become flesh and the among us. Now we look at number three. People did not receive him. Many did not recognize him. Verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, that his own did not receive him. Now you would think if someone loved us that deeply, cared for humanity so profoundly, that people would have welcomed him and embraced him, but not so. Not so. There were so many who didn't receive him. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected. So many didn't spend anything to do with him. And some didn't even recognize him. Interestingly, John uses that word, word that philosophical term, to speak of communication, of, of the very voice of God. Jesus is God communicating with us, and we didn't understand. We didn't understand. A friend of mine, Jake, Jake Maxwell, told me uh, a story about Terry Carter, who was a professor at Wachita Baptist University, who was living in Germany. Now, Dr. Carter speaks German and English. Dr. Carter was on the subway in Germany. He saw an American woman who was obviously frustrated, uh, obviously agitated. And you know what we Americans do when we're traveling abroad? If we think if we speak loudly, they will understand English. And that's what this lady was doing. There was a policeman there. She was lost. I didn't know what to do. So she was speaking really loudly. And she said this. I don't know where to go. Help, please help me. I'm American. I need English. The German policeman was also agitated and responded loudly. And in German, I don't speak English. Dr. Carter, that Wachita professor, walked up. Remember, he speaks German and English fluently. He is an American. He saw that American in distress. And he walked up to her and said to her calmly, In English, man, I'd be glad to help you. But the woman turned to Dr. Carter and screamed at him, Don't you all get it? I don't speak German. I don't speak German. And she took off along the without any help. A man who wanted to help was speaking her language. But she was so distracted by her frenetic fear and her fear. She was so upset and so afraid and lost that she didn't hear someone speaking in her own language. And so he who created the world came to speak in our language. And folks were so distracted and so lost and so frantic that they missed it. And some still do. God still by his spirit still speaks. In our heart language, our heart languages, and we still miss it. In the flesh, he dwelt among us. Some did not receive him, and some, in fact, some in fact did not even did not even recognize him. But some did, which brings us to the last point. Some received him, and some still do. We read to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of God. To those who did receive him. To those who, be, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of God. It's been a fun weekend for us over at Mary Mac. Some of you were there helping to volunteer. About 50 of you volunteered with food and doing buddies for the performers. The Mary Mac Hall is a performing arts center over on Triana that uh, exists for the purpose of serving with people and families and uh, people who have special needs. They do performances. So this performance was, it was a partnership between our church and Mary Mac to present the Christmas story. And it was, uh, it was beautiful Friday night and Saturday night, and the, the staff of Mary Mac wrote the script, and uh, those who performed performed so dramatically and wonderfully, and uh, I learned things about the Christmas story I didn't know. 
Like, for example, the inn in Bethlehem is actually an Airbnb. I didn't, I'd never have seen that. And that when the wise men came, they brought gold, frankincense, myrrh, and a ham sandwich to Mary. Forget the fact that Mary is a good Jewish lady would never leave the ham sandwich. That was a small detail that didn't matter. It was a great celebration of Christmas. And the innkeeper, the inn display, was very dramatic. The innkeeper at one point said, Boil some water, get some sheep. Call a doctor, he said. He was so upset about Mary's getting burned. And this innkeeper, this dramatic innkeeper, reminded me. Nina Donahue, from Ontario, Canada, wrote about a Christmas play performed by her second graders. Ms. Donahue knew that filling, giving a part to Ralph would be hard. Ralph had failed two years. He was supposed to be in fourth grade, but he was in the second grade. And so Ralph was bigger than the other kids. Ralph had a learning disability, which is why he had not advanced to the next grades. She wondered what part in the program would she give to Ralph, because Ralph had a learning disability, and he was big. And then she thought, I'll make Ralph the innkeeper. The innkeeper in that play did not have a lot of lines, and Ralph was bigger than the other kids. He would be an intimidating figure, and in most Christmas plays, the innkeeper is not a nice guy. So she made Ralph the innkeeper. The night of the play arrived, the play arrived and the auditorium was full. They progressed through the story until it was time for Ralph's part in the play. Little Joseph, little second grade Joseph, helped little second grade Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked. That was Ralph's cue. What do you want? Ralph barked, trying to sound firm. We're looking for lodging, answered the second grade Joseph. Look for it elsewhere, said Ralph. Sternly, the inn is full. Kind sir, I replied Joseph. We have asked everywhere in vain. We have traveled far and are very weary. There is no room for you. Please, good innkeeper. This is my wife Mary. She is heavy with child and must find a place to rest for the night. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She is so tired. Ralph the innkeeper looked down at the second grade said Mary. Ralph was obviously moved by her difficulty. It was Ralph's turn to speak. But Ralph said nothing. Ralph said nothing. No, keep on, the director said when backstage giving Ralph his cue. But Ralph just stood there. No, be gone, the director said again, again giving Ralph his cue. A third time. No, be gone, be gone. Ralph finally got back into character. No, be gone, he said. Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and they turned to go, just as they had practiced. But Ralph did not do as they practiced. The Christmas pageant took an unexpected, unexpected turn, turn. When Ralph the innkeeper went off script, Ralph's heart was breaking, and his eyes were puddling. Don't go, Joseph! Don't go, Joseph! Ralph the innkeeper said to the second grade, and obviously very puzzled, Joseph, Joseph, please don't go, he said. Don't take Mary. Don't take Mary. Come back, he said. And then Ralph, the stern innkeeper, spread his arms and he said, You can have my room. Ms. Donahue said that some people complained that the play hadn't gone as planned. But most people said it was the truest Christmas story they'd ever had seen before. And there are still those who would dismiss the Christmas, who would send Jesus away. Too smart, too intellectual. Too many questions for which there are no answers. Too busy to occupy. But there are those who still receive. Who still receive. And to those who receive it, the Bible says, God gives the power, the dynamite, to become the children of God, born by God's Spirit, born of God Himself. 
A transformation so dramatic, so beautiful, that Jesus he's called it a new birth. Frank was born, was born at Christmas 1998. Sharon and his wife had come to First Baptist Church of Mount Washington, where I was pastor for years, alone. But on Christmas Eve, on Christmas Eve, Frank joined her. A lot was going on in Frank's life. He had lost his family members. He had a lot of questions for which there were no answers, and Frank's questions were true. And I looked out there, I'd seen every service. Sharon sitting right over here by herself. Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve, there sat Frank, there sat Frank. And something happened to Frank that Christmas. He was back the next Sunday, he was back the next Sunday, he was back the next Sunday. And then on a Sunday morning, Frank stepped out during that hymn of invitation and came to where I was and said, I'm ready to follow Jesus. I baptized him a couple of weeks later, in February of 1999. Frank's transformation was obvious, it was obvious to everybody. It was, it was, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful. I'm looking for a word bigger than transformation, but I can't find it. And he lived transformed until less than a year ago when Frank met Jesus face to face. face, to face. This is not just, this is not just, it's not just theory, it's not just hypotheticals, it's not just a fairy tale Christmas story. It's real. And to those who receive Jesus, Jesus, God gives the power to experience something so beautiful, so transformative, that the best way to put it is, it's like being born a second time, a second time. And I would want nothing more for you this Christmas than that. Than that. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. 102 is the hymn we're going to sing. And I'm going to wait for you. Others are going to wait for you down here. To come and talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And maybe there's a Frank here among us. I want to talk about what it means to be a member of our church. We've been thrilled and delighted to welcome you. While others are singing, we're waiting for you. Let's stand, please, as we sing. As we sing. Thank you so much for joining us today. You might be feeling a need or maybe even a call from God to be part of our church family in a more tangible way. If you're not able to join us physically here at 600 Governors Drive, whether it's because of distance, mobility, schedule, or some other reason, you still can be a member of First Baptist Principle. Let me send you information on what that might mean, what you could expect from your church, and then what your church could expect from you. Email me at travis at fbchsv.org. Let me know of your desire for membership. I will send you a form requesting enough information to link you with one of our ministers. Join hands with us as we attempt to join God himself in his mission into the world. Thank you. 
our benediction this morning as we leave this place of worship. By the tender mercy of our God, love has broken upon us. Light is given where once there was darkness and hope where there was only death. We move through the season knowing that God will guide our feet into the way of peace, hope, and truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus.